Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Welcome to Heart Failure Beat. This month, we have a special conversation with Dr. Jacob Abraham, and we talk about the role of implantable pulmonary artery pressure sensors in the management of patients with heart failure. In From Failure to Function, Dr. Umapathy will discuss about the role of CRISPR gene editing in the treatment of dilated cardiomyopathies. But first, let's go to Heart Failure Rounds. Welcome to Heart Failure Rounds. This is Dr. Michael Beasley. Prior to talking about an article this month, I'd like to say a few words in memory of a special colleague. I'm going to speak of a former colleague of mine in the outpatient cardiology office. Uh, her name uh, was Allison. Uh, Allison unfortunately passed away earlier this month after being in the hospital for a couple of weeks due to a chronic illness that she had suffered from. Allison was one of our front office staff members, and as I transitioned from fellowship training into uh, clinical practice, uh, she was a great resource for me. She had worked within our health system for, for a number of years, was incredibly resourceful in helping me plug in my patients uh, with the appropriate referrals for additional consultations and making sure that they would be scheduled for appropriate testing and treatments. Did a lot for, for me as a, a brand new faculty member in my clinic. And it was sad to hear that that she was sick and, and unfortunately was told by another one of our colleagues here in the office that she um, then passed away. I want to take this moment in her memory to pay tribute not only to Allison, but I also want to say just a few words, you know, about our heart failure care team in general. And, you know, as we often try to say, the providing care for patients with heart failure, it's a team sport. Everybody on that team plays such an important role without having each other to, to really rely upon and to help each other out. It's, it's really difficult to do this job. And Allison really, you know, made my job and my life much, much easier than it could have been otherwise when I had started off uh, in practice uh, just a few years ago. So, you know, for everybody out there, clinicians predominantly, I believe, probably listening to this podcast, you know, just take a few moments to think about those front office staff folks that we have working with us and all the things that they do to help us take care of our patients, making sure that they get to where they need to be and making sure that the things that we want our patients to have uh, are provided for them, whether that be additional appointments, testing, treatments. You know, I'm talking about our, our receptionists, our plan coordinators, the folks that help make sure that patients' insurances will cover the, the treatments and the therapies that we want for our patients. It's a lot of work that goes into providing all those forms of care, and, and those folks don't get the 
recognition sometimes that they deserve for what they do. And they don't get to have all that praise, you know, from the patient uh, when we see them in the office and, you know, as they're off, oftentimes working behind the scenes. And Allison was one of those people that would go above and beyond to do everything that she could to make sure our patients had what they needed and and make sure that I was well taken care of and the things that I wanted to have done for the patients were, were you know, in fact, accomplished. And always remember Allison's presence in, in the clinic and pay my my respects to her and my condolences uh, to her family. I want to say thank you to everybody else out there that does that job and makes our lives as, as heart failure clinicians a little bit easier in the lives of our patients with the heart failure a little bit better in memory of Allison. This week, I'd like to talk about just a single paper. It was published in uh, Heart and uh, has the title, Exercise Training in Heart Failure. First author of this paper is Grace Olivia Dibbon. Uh, senior author was Rod Taylor, and both of these individuals hail from the School of Health and Wellbeing from the University of Glasgow in Glasgow in the United Kingdom. In this document, the authors first start out by differentiating the term physical activity from exercise, understanding that while patients all can be physically active, participating in exercise training is one form of physical activity. And it's a form of physical activity where there is a focused effort at trying to accomplish a certain task. They believe that both exercise training and physical activity should be part of an overall care approach for patients with heart failure. Specifically, the authors state that exercise is a subcategory of physical activity, which the activity is planned, structured, repetitive, and purposeful with the intent to improve or maintain one or more elements of physical fitness. Going along with this, uh, cardiac rehabilitation with exercise is one form in, within which that exercise may, may occur, although we may also come up with other exercise prescriptions for our patients that can occur outside of a formal cardiac rehabilitation program. Currently, the World Health Organization recommends uh, somewhere between 150 and 300 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity per week for adults and older adults as well as people living with chronic health conditions. Additionally, people should participate in muscle strengthening activities and activities that help improve functional balance at least two to three times per week. While the benefits of exercise are not foreign to any of us, I would imagine, unfortunately, it's something that not enough patients uh, participate in and probably something not enough heart failure clinicians recommend for their patients uh, when seeing them in clinical encounters. Therefore, if you are a clinician who would like to begin recommending exercise training, uh, this article uh, goes through how you would go about doing so. The authors state that it would be important to first perform some form of risk stratification to make sure that it is indeed safe for your patient to begin a formal exercise program. If you wanted to be uh, objective in assessing their improvement, uh, you could have them undergo some form of formal diagnostic testing, like a cardiopulmonary exercise test prior to initiating an exercise program. But you know, while that's not necessarily uh, available in all circumstances, uh, doing something like a six-minute walk test could also be uh, considered. It's recommended to make sure that you encourage patients to have a warm-up and cool-down phase prior to and following uh, their exercise uh, activities and that these phases should last uh, 10 to 15 minutes, respectively. 
So how do you go about prescribing exercise? Well, uh, the authors of the paper uh, use a mnemonic FITVP, F-I-T-T-V-P, and that stands for frequency, intensity, time, type, volume, and progression. So first, uh, you would tell them how frequent do you want them to exercise, you know, how many times per week, you know, how long would you want them to exercise? Therefore, according to FitVP, uh, you're going to first tell them how frequent you'd like them to exercise per week. What is the intensity going to be? How hard would you then like them to work? And oftentimes you can probably adjust that based upon what heart rate they would be at during exercise. T, time, how long? Uh, so what is the duration of the exercise program per training session? And also how long would you want this to happen over the course of weeks or months? You know, what are you foreseeing moving forward? The second T is for type. So are you going to be doing aerobic exercises, endurance exercises? You know, and that could include walking, jogging, cycling, rowing, or swimming. Uh, would you want them to be doing strength or resistance training with free or machine weights, resistance bands, body weight exercises, um, or maybe just uh, mobility and flexibility or balance training with things like yoga and stretching? Then you get into the V, which is volume. What's the total amount of training that you want to do based upon that frequency, intensity, and duration, the product of all of those things combined? And lastly, progression, which is, as we all probably know, those of us that have uh, done exercise training in the past, you don't necessarily start off doing the same thing that you will be doing some weeks down the line. Hopefully over time, you become more fit and you're able to do either higher intensity exercises or lift uh, heavier amounts of weights and things like this. So making sure that you uh, progress with the recommendations as the patient becomes more fit over time. So we'll talk a little bit about the different types of exercise or the modalities of exercise. So first, there is the aerobic exercise training, which would include things like walking and jogging and cycling and swimming. And those are the things that we most commonly think about probably when we ask our patients to become more physically active or do exercise. Uh, those things can be done, you know, at various degrees of intensity for over various amounts of uh, periods of time. There's some thoughts that some patients might uh, benefit more from interval training, where well, you could have patients do things a little bit more vigorously for a short period of time uh, with some breaks in between intervals of exercise versus you're having somebody do a lower intensity exercise for just a longer period of time. Really, you're going to tailor that based upon you know your, your individual patient and what they're able to accomplish and what you would determine would be possibly safe for them. Resistance training uh, is also very important and, and helpful. That could include uh, more traditional weightlifting uh, or using uh, weight machines at um, a fitness facility, but it could be uh, something even more simple like using body weight exercises within the home uh, or uh, things like resistance bands. Patients who are a little bit more frail or older, that might be uh, using things like resistance bands might be a little bit more um, reasonable for them to do. It might be a little more difficult for them to do body weight exercises, and it might be difficult for them to get to the gym. And also thinking of, you know, uh, other types of easy things for them to be able to do around the home where uh, maybe you're, instead of using formal exercise equipment, uh, using furniture to rest upon while you're using that to help leverage yourself while you're doing a body weight exercise or possibly uh, using other things in the home to lift or pull like uh, cans of food, for example. I know is one thing that I've always talked about with patients instead of having formal dumbbells to, to be lifting, uh, trying to make things a little bit easier. So again, the, the whole idea though is that you don't only want them to be doing more aerobic exercise, but resistance training also should be included. But you might need to you know, modify that based upon your patient, what they have available to them, 
what their overall level of fitness or frailty may be and what is possible in, in the area where your patient lives. Uh, aquatic exercises, again, it depends on where you're uh, located. These tend to be exercises that can be very enjoyable and helpful for patients. You know, a lot of our patients with heart failure are older. They have some other comorbidities, including orthopedic issues like osteoarthritis. And getting them into a pool to do exercise sometimes is something that's really fun for them because they don't have to worry about that that load on their joints. And um, they get a good cardioaerobic workout in the pool as well. So if there is, you know, pools available where patients are able to perform some of these exercises, that would be something that you might want to consider uh, recommending for them. And then lastly, participating in sports. You know, it depends what level of fitness is somebody at. If they want to participate in recreational sports, you know, such as distance running, road cycling, rowing, or other things, including, you know, playing tennis or pickleball seems to be something that's on the rise in popularity. Um, Seems like so many of my patients these days are coming in either prior to a pickleball match or heading out to play pickleball later in the afternoon. Getting people involved in those types of activities might be something that would motivate them to be more active over the long term as well. But um, again, you need to make sure that they have the proper level of fitness and you're appropriately risk stratifying them before they get involved in those types of things. The authors talk about how exercise uh, prescription really should be beneficial in patients with all types of heart failure, whether that be heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or preserved ejection fraction. But then stating that, you know, the the benefits might have different physiological impacts uh, in these different syndromes. And I think that goes down to the fact that we know there is some pathophysiological differences between HEFREF and HEFPEF and uh, exercise training in patients with HEFPEF. You might get that benefit more from the overall improvement in peripheral vascular physiology and improved skeletal muscle perfusion and metabolism as much as you are getting from any improvement in cardiac function per se, whereas the improvement in symptoms and health overall likely as a result of exercise in patients with HEFREF might be seen more as in some improvement in systolic function with patients with a reduced ejection fraction. Finally, just to summarize, uh, you know, the key messages that the authors wished to pass along as a, as a, a summary of their article is that exercise training improves exercise tolerance, rates of hospitalization, and health-related quality of life in patients with heart failure, and is an important component within the overall multi- multidisciplinary management of heart failure. Uh, but prior to commencing exercise training, assessments to exclude contraindications to exercise, determine risk level, and evaluations of exercise capacity should be performed. Different exercise protocols are available, as we talked about, including the different modes and in the settings that a person might exercise. It's important to consider an individual's capabilities, needs, preferences, and the accessibility of center-based programs when prescribing exercise. And uh, the benefits of exercise training appear to be similar across the different types of heart failure phenotypes. However, the biological mechanisms are likely to differ. Nevertheless, the principles of exercise prescription are broadly available to all phenotypes. And again, I think the big thing here to remember, maybe as a clinician, about how should we go making a recommendation or a prescription for exercise is, again, using that mnemonic FITVP, F for frequency, I for intensity, T for time, T for type, V for volume, and P for progression. Uh, That's how you would encourage your patients or provide a prescription for exercise and get your patients moving a little bit more. Well, thanks again for taking the time to listen to Heart Failure Rounds and our feature conversation is coming right up. 
Welcome everybody to this month's featured conversation. Unfortunately, this month I'm doing this one solo. Uh, my uh, co-host, Dr. Preomopathy, is out there traversing the globe, uh, trying to find the next top interesting research stories to share with you on From Failure to Function. And uh, she was unable to join us today, but I'm very interested to see what she's had to come up with as a result of the conferences that she's been attending most recently. Today, uh, we're very happy to be joined by Dr. Jacob Abraham, and just if I'd like to take a moment to introduce Dr. Abraham. Dr. Abraham is a cardiologist uh, with the Providence Heart Institute and is the section head of advanced heart failure. This is in Portland, Oregon. Dr. Abraham began practicing in advanced uh, heart failure uh, and began the advanced heart failure program at Providence in 2009, played a central role in the development of programs in hemodynamic monitoring, durable left ventricular assist device uh, usage, cardiogenic shock and temporary mechanical circulatory support, and most recently, heart transplantation. Dr. Abraham is a member of the Cardiogenic Shock Working Group and is a co-founder of the Hemodynamic Frontiers of Heart Failure, or HF2. He's an active investigator for clinical trials of all stages of heart failure and uh, is a Hopkins alum, uh, spending uh, his uh, training past life at Johns Hopkins University. And it's a sad story today that uh, uh, Priya is unable to join us as she uh, obviously is a Hopkins faculty member currently and spent a number of years training at Hopkins as well. And for all those other Hopkins alums out there, Dr. Abraham was the assistant chief of service of the Janeway firm uh, during his time at Hopkins. And we're, we're very delighted to have Dr. Abraham here today. And uh, Jacob, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So today we're going to be talking about the use of pulmonary artery pressure sensor devices in the management of heart failure patients. And, you know, specifically we're talking about a device that has a name called CardioMEMS, but this is kind of talking about these devices or the potential for these types of devices in general. And there's been a, a few trials that have been done in this space over the past several years. There was the CHAMPION trial that was done some time ago, and then more recently, the Guide HF trial was uh, presented, and then uh, also Monitor HF had come out uh, very recently. And I was hoping first, uh, Jacob, if you don't mind, uh, for our listeners that aren't as familiar with all the data in this space, if you could kind of give a summary of you know where the evidence is supporting the use of, of these types of devices and how the evidence has kind of developed over the last several years. I'd be happy to. Perhaps before I begin discussing the trials of pulmonary artery pressure sensors, I should just take a moment to emphasize to the audience the pressure, or rather the problem that we're trying to solve through pressure monitoring. And that is namely that patients who have congestive heart failure, as the audience of this podcast is well aware, are at very increased risk of being hospitalized due to decompensation of heart failure. Uh, and in recent years, we've begun to appreciate that even ambulatory worsening of heart failure is associated with worsening prognosis. So better management of heart failure is that goes above and beyond management of signs and symptoms alone has really been the impetus for the design of pressure sensors, not only for the pulmonary artery, but even preceding that, pressure sensors were designed to be placed into the right ventricle. Those were studied in clinical trials, as well as the left atrium. But the pulmonary artery pressure sensor is the only one to date that is currently approved by the FDA. So the, there are three randomized clinical trials to date that have demonstrated uh, the benefit of the pulmonary artery pressure sensor. The first, as you referenced, is the Champion HF study, which 
studied a population of patients who were at high risk for hospitalization. Specifically, they were patients who had a New York Heart Association functional class three heart failure, regardless of ejection fraction, who also had been hospitalized with heart failure in the preceding 12 months. In this trial, patients received a pulmonary artery pressure sensor and then were randomized to standard of care treatment without knowledge of pulmonary artery pressure versus treatment guided by knowledge of the pulmonary artery pressure. The primary endpoint was studied at one year and was the rate of heart failure hospitalization. And the hazard ratio was about 0.64, which was statistically significant. This positive trial motivated subsequent trial called the Guide HF study. The purpose of this trial was to answer the question whether an expanded population might also benefit from hemodynamically guided therapy. And specifically in this trial, like Champion, patients, the, the trial included patients who had New York Heart Association class three heart failure, but expanded to patients who had class two as well as ambulatory class four heart failure. Patients were qualified or, or indicated if they also had a heart failure hospitalization within the preceding 12 months or without a heart failure hospitalization had elevation of natriuretic peptides. And this study was overall negative, but was disrupted by the COVID-19 pandemic. And as I'm sure we'll get into, uh, a subsequent analysis compared the outcomes of the trial based on a pre-COVID analysis and a post-COVID analysis. And looking at that data, the trial showed that there was benefit from pulmonary artery pressure monitoring prior to the pandemic, but that effect seemed to be abrogated during the pandemic and after the pandemic. There has been you know, quite a, a bit of discussion about that type of analysis, but suffice it to say what the analysis showed was that during the pandemic, the control group actually had a reduction in the overall event rate, specifically their heart failure hospitalization rate. And this was associated with a reduction in the control group's pulmonary artery pressure. So what we found is that the pulmonary artery pressure reduction exhibited by the control group during the pandemic abrogated the benefits of pulmonary artery pressure monitoring that had been seen by the treatment arm. So the overall trial was negative, but this post-hoc analysis uh, is at least very suggestive, I believe, that the benefits of the pulmonary artery pressure sensor are significant and real. And then most recently, there's a trial that was conducted in the Netherlands called Monitor HF, a smaller open-label but randomized study in which patients with NYHA class 3 heart failure and a prior heart failure hospitalization were randomized to receive the CardioMEMS or standard of care. So by contrast to Champion and in contrast to Guide HF, these patients, the control arm, um, did not receive a sensor. So we aren't able to track their pulmonary artery pressure but it was open label, so patients got the sensor and were managed according to PA pressure or received standard of care. And unlike the first two trials we mentioned, the endpoint here was Kansas City cardiomyopathy uh, quality of life uh, score. And at one year, there was a significant difference between the treatment and the control arm with an improvement of about seven points in the treatment arm and a slight reduction in the control arm. Secondary endpoints did show uh, benefits in terms of reduced heart failure hospitalization. So I think when one takes the totality of the randomized data and adds to that real-world experience, um, as well as data from a post-approval study that showed that in the real world, pulmonary artery pressures can be reduced significantly through 
monitoring and management of PA pressure, there's at least a strong uh, line of evidence to support the use of PA pressure monitoring in patients with heart failure, again, regardless of ejection fraction. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that last part, I just want to make sure that that comes across as well as that, you know, initially the uh, trial enrollees in uh, Champion, if I'm not mistaken, were patients with HEPFREF, but these most recent trials included patients regardless of ejection fraction. So your HEFPEF patients and your HEFREF patients both would be potentially indicated for the use of these types of therapies. Now, now that being said, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to have this discussion today was because there, you know, there's been some pushback amongst, uh, you know, from folks in the cardiology community about some of this uh, data that had been published supporting the use of pulmonary artery pressure monitoring and the use of, you know, taking care of our patients in an ambulatory setting. Um, as you mentioned, I think the first, you know, if we want to look at GuideHF starting off, it was probably where some of the larger feedback came from was that decision to do that post hoc analysis in regards to comparing the data uh, in totality versus that that was collected prior to the onset of the uh, COVID pandemic in March of 2020. And obviously, there was uh, differences in, in, the, in the results there, as you mentioned. You know, looking at that post hoc analysis, it was a statistically significant uh, benefit was shown. But, you know, still some folks are, you know, a little bit skeptical about possibly using that data. But, um, you know, there's others out there that feel very, very strongly that this uh, shows that the, the these devices can help take care of our patients in an ambulatory setting. So I guess I'd like to hear a little bit about how we should make sense of, of that conflict, I guess, if you will, and what we should take away from this and kind of trying to, to better decide how we should apply the use of these types of devices to the management of our patients with heart failure. Sure. I think it's important, first of all, for us to summarize what the critique of the guide post hoc analysis or the guide COVID analysis is. And just so everyone understands the sequence of events, um, just to remind everyone that the national pandemic emergency was declared in, in March of 2020. And at that time, all of the patients had been implanted and had completed at least three months of the trial at that point. But there were still about 30% of the population that had not completed follow-up uh, through the end of the trial. In August of that year, in conjunction with European agencies, the FDA and the sponsor agreed to do a COVID analysis, sensitivity analysis, to analyze these data to assess the impact of the COVID pandemic, which obviously is unprecedented in the history of clinical trials, an unprecedented disruption to the U.S. healthcare system. And I think, you know, it would have frankly been a mistake not to do such analysis because I think that would have been a disservice not only to the patients who participated in the in the study, uh, but also to to the investigators who have committed you know a lot of time uh, to execute this study. So I think this was an important and necessary analysis. It was done prior to the completion of the study, so it is pre-specified in that respect, uh, and it did have the mandate of the FDA. So with that context, you know we have to re recall that the primary endpoint in guide is a combination of mortality, heart failure hospitalization, and urgent visit for heart failure management. And the critique here is, is predominantly that heart failure hospitalization is a subjective endpoint that is subject to potential bias from investigators. And because investigators who are managing patients implanted with a sensor are aware of their treatment assignment, it is possible, but I would argue unlikely, 
that a patient who is having clinical worsening would be deterred from going to the emergency room consciously or unconsciously, uh, and that may have impacted the outcome. And I, you know, I think there's theoretical risk of that, and certainly it's it's a potential weakness of the study. But I think practically speaking, the likelihood of a patient going to the hospital at all during that time frame was actually lower. And we saw that, you know, that that's the argument is that well, look what happens to the control arm; those patients aren't admitted to the hospital, and that shows that this is a, a potential bias in the study because now patients who had previously been hospitalized are not being hospitalized at the same rate. But what can't be explained by that bias and what, what isn't open to bias is pulmonary artery pressure. And what we saw is that patients in the control arm before the pandemic had higher pulmonary artery pressures. And then during the pandemic, their pulmonary artery pressures went down. And the extensive analysis by Xyl and colleagues that was published in the European Heart Journal assessed whether these could be due to healthcare delivery factors, whether these could be due to disease-specific factors, whether these could be due to provider-specific factors. And they essentially excluded all the factors that might be influencing that outcome. And essentially, it has to come down to patient-specific factors. And I think this is highly plausible given the impact that COVID had on society, our access to restaurants, and you know they go through potential mechanisms by which the COVID pandemic may lead to a reduction in pulmonary artery pressure. And I won't uh, recite all the potential causes here, but I think from a biological plausibility standpoint, you can't bias pulmonary artery pressure. So that reduction in PA pressure in the control group and the treatment arm pressures remain low indicates that truly this was an effect of the pandemic and really is, a, I think, a behavioral impact of the pandemic that manifested in the pulmonary artery pressure of the control arm. Yeah, very interesting. And, you know, one of the things I think that's, you know, obviously a, a strength of GuideHF is that this was uh, a trial where both, uh, you know, arms did receive the device. And it was just that the management from that device was one arm versus the other. But, you know, that takes me to uh, the more recent trial, which was Monitor HF and a little bit different, you know, different trial design where there, you know, was also a little bit of pushback on the results where, you know, you had one group that had the CardioMEMS device implanted and then the other group did not. And then they were trying to look at, see, to, you know, the investigators were looking to see if there's any difference in, in symptom uh, burden, you know, with the KCCQ scores following uh, device implantation and outpatient monitoring and management. The criticism or, or pushback in this trial, it seems like it was probably, you know, a thought that, you know, there's a, it's, a, it's a subjective assessment of uh, symptom burden. Uh, using a group that knows that they're receiving a treatment versus or an intervention, if you will, versus a group that's not uh, receiving such an intervention, and you know, therefore, there's you know, obviously a, a potential for some uh, reporting bias uh, based upon the uh, participants in that trial. What were your takeaways from the results of uh, Monitor HF? Well, I think Monitor HF is an important study because to date we hadn't really known what the impact of PA pressure monitoring and improvement in hemodynamics translated into from the patient's perspective in terms of their symptom burden. We knew that we could reduce their hospitalizations, but I think it's important that we understand the impact on quality of life, and this is the first trial to measure that. I think it's a fair critique that patients who undergo a procedure may be, and who are unblinded to that, uh, may be potentially biased by the fact that they received a procedure. But I do think the magnitude of change in KCCQ was was pretty significant. I mean, if you look at 
other trials, this is a pretty significant improvement in quality of life. And KCCQ, as has been pointed out by others, you know, measures not only change in functional capacity and quality of life from a sort of heart failure perspective, but also looks at other elements of, of quality of life. And so, you know, heart failure is not just a disease that impacts patients' functional capacity, but, you know, their sense of control over their over their life. And I think CardioMEMS provides an opportunity for patients to feel like they have control of their disease. And I think that's important and it's quantified. And sure, it's not a perfect trial. But again, I think given the what we know about the overall uh, totality of evidence and what we can extrapolate from the mechanism of action of this device, uh, I believe that these are certainly plausible and add, again, I think add, add to the evidence but it's also important because this was a trial that was done outside the United States. I think another healthcare setting uh, is important to get that perspective. I think maybe if I could summarize in my plain language, uh, some of the things that we've talked about so far is that, you know, it seems like, you know, there's a lot of intricacies that go into the trial design and analysis uh, with these trials. But the bottom line, you know, in, in my opinion, as a simple heart failure doctor is, it seemed, you know, we want to do what we can to make our patients feel better. Uh, ways to make them feel better is, you know, having less breathlessness when they're not in the hospital. Obviously, keep them out of the hospital and make sure that they are, you know, feeling good about themselves, feeling good about the things that they're able to to accomplish on a day to day basis. And while, yeah, you know, it's very it's very difficult to try to prove that something works objectively with all of the the complex things that go into trial design, but if this type of uh, endeavor is able to help people feel better about their care, feel better symptomatically, and avoid a situation that takes them into the hospital, I think it's really something that we need to uh, look at very carefully and and make best use of for people who could benefit from that. And I'll just add, I know that there's been a lot said about the fact that CardioMEMS, you know, has not been shown to reduce mortality. That's the benchmark by which the foundational therapies and heart failure are judged. But, you know, we have to remember that this is a diagnostic device. It is not a therapy in and of itself. We have to remember that guide heart failure was a study that only extended for 12 months and that 30% of the patients who were enrolled in that study were deemed to be class two New York Heart Association functional class. So I think there's biological plausibility that reducing pulmonary artery pressure may be life prolonging. But I think we're going to likely have to study a higher risk population or study a lower risk population for longer periods of time in order to demonstrate that. And there's, as we you just highlighted, lots of intricacies, nuances, and challenges in designing studies and paying for studies in order to show that type of benefit. I will add that there has been a recent meta-analysis that was presented at THT, and I believe is under review as a manuscript, that combined CardioMEMS, rather Champion HF, Guide Heart Failure, and the LAPTOP study, which is a trial, randomized trial of a left atrial pressure sensor, and studied the impact on mortality at two years in a, in a population of HEFREF patients. And at least in the abstract that was presented, that reduced all-cause mortality by 25% at two years and reduced heart failure hospitalization by 36%. So, Different sensors mixed in a meta-analysis limit to a HEFREF population, but again, I think provides a strong evidence signal uh, that this hypothesis uh, is likely to be true. That'd be very interesting to see those results when they're published. So I guess moving on now to maybe more practical applications of this type of technology. 
as you had mentioned during your, your um, comments, this is a diagnostic tool. Therefore, it requires a, uh, an approach and a team typically of individuals to uh, make use of that diagnostic information and deliver effective patient care. What have your experiences been in using this device? And, you know, based upon your experiences, I guess, what type of suggestions or recommendations would you have for those out there that aren't as familiar with programs that use devices like this in the treatment and assessment of their patients in an ambulatory setting? And how should people go about maybe integrating such therapies or devices into such management? Uh, to first answer that question, I'd like to make an unabashed plug of my own publication, if that's okay. Maybe we can link it in the show notes. But I and others have put together a, a white paper that provides both patient-level and program-level recommendations on PA pressure management. I've also published our single-center data on our approach and our outcomes uh, with our early experience with cardiomems. But with that aside, I will say that I think as I'm sure you are, I am very lucky to work with a fabulous team of nurses and advanced practice practitioners who assist in the management of these patients. It does require a lot of infrastructure and organization to capitalize on the availability of hemodynamic information to optimize patient management. I'll say that early on in our experience, I would say for our first 10 to 15 patients, I personally was monitoring the information and making recommendations to our staff. But as we have accumulated uh, more providers and more patients in our CardioMEMS program, we took the step of creating algorithms for management of pulmonary artery pressure in patients who had HEF-PEF as well as HEF-REF. I think the difference in the physiology between those two conditions should make a difference in our pressure thresholds and our responses to pressure deviations in the two populations. But overall, those do have to be refined and tailored to the individual based on blood pressure and renal function. And that all those considerations take time. But for those who may be starting out, I think developing protocols within the clinic and engaging with nursing and APPs is really critical to the success of the program. I think another element that's very important is that any patient who, who is implanted, the recommendation is that, you know, for the next two to three months, aggressive efforts are made to reduce pulmonary artery pressure with frequent medication changes. It's usually after three months that one has reached the limits of what can be done with heart failure medication and diuretic optimization. And then it becomes a matter of trying to maintain a patient at the pressure that they have achieved. One can use software from the manufacturer to set activation thresholds or notification thresholds so that one doesn't have to look at every patient's pulmonary artery pressures every day, but can instead be notified when patients deviate outside of a pre-specified range. That's very interesting. Similar experience here at our institution where we have a large number of patients that have been implanted with such devices, and it, it, it really takes a team approach to uh, effectively take care of such patients. You know, we also have a team of nurses that will be monitoring these patients more closely on, if not a day-by-day basis, you know, several times per week and looking at those numbers and then taking those patients either to an APP or myself or one of my my uh, fellow uh, heart failure cardiologists here, should there be 
concerns regarding uh, what the measurements are on a given day or what the trends are. And most of the time, our, our APPs are able to address those questions and they become quite uh, skilled in managing these things. But sometimes it does have to be taken to a higher level and and I've become involved in, in the more granular management of these patients. And But it's, you know, one of the things I've seen is that, you know, just anecdotally is, you know, we've had a number of patients that have been on both sides. I think like, I, we you know, that we were either we were obviously not treating them appropriately in regards to their diuretic therapies prior to pulmonary artery monitoring device implantation. And either, you know, they were quite congested and there was well beyond what they may have looked on exam. And it was surprising, uh, you know, possibly when, you know, they finally had a right heart cath and and, uh, device implantation to see how congested they were. And, you know, cardiologists or other physicians prior to that time, you know, had been maybe a little bit hesitant to be very aggressive with diuretic therapy because there's a bit of a cardiorenal component uh, going on where they were having some degree of, you know, chronic kidney disease or what appeared to be chronic kidney disease at least. And, um, but once we were able to be more aggressive with our diuresis, with that reassurance from the, the numbers that we were getting on a day-to-day basis, you know, not only did that result in symptomatic improvement for that patient, it resulted in speaking about a patient in general, but these are, you know, it's happened time and time again, but also, you know, improvement in their renal function overall. But then on the other side of the coin, I think it's been equally as useful in my personal experience where we've had patients where uh, we felt for one reason or the other that they were congested. And it's turned out that, you know, they've had other reasons to appear congested or to have breathlessness. And we've been able to then not need to aggressively diurese them to an extent where we are uh, causing harm because we are reassured that the reason that they have edema, the reason that they have shortness of breath with activity is not because of them having elevated cardiopulmonary pressures. It's because they have other comorbidities that are causing that type of uh, clinical exam finding and other comorbidities that are causing their breathlessness and um, helping to kind of tease those things apart. Also, even if it's not, even though it's not helping us, I guess, be more aggressive in their care for their heart failure, it is helping with their care overall and resulting in them being happier, healthier, and overall doing much better over the long term. And I've only been, you know, been doing this for a few years. I'm a rookie compared to your level of experience, and but you know, I it, there's I still have you know a number of patient stories that I can tell that uh, we've had these these really good outcomes where we weren't quite sure what we were to do with them uh, with their diuretic therapies previously, and um, but after device implantation, things smoothed out, and the patients have done much better and. And it's 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 really been able to bring a lot of um, positive outcomes for these people. And I think you've touched on a critical point. You know, our heart failure patients tend to be older, tend to have multiple comorbidities, and as you've highlighted, can oftentimes have other explanations for their symptoms that can make it very difficult to interpret without either bringing them into the clinic or even when you do whether it's because of body habitus or other issues, it can be very challenging to know how best to manage them. And our standard of care is to use weight oftentimes to make an ambulatory determination as to patients' congestive status, and that can be uh, very misleading. I mean, we know that from data from Chronicle, for example, which is a trial that looked at RV pressure, um, but those early data confirmed that in the pathophysiology of heart failure decompensation, 
weight change is a very late event in this pathophysiologic cascade. And we also know, both from experience and from trials, that patients who have chronic kidney disease, patients who have pulmonary disease, patients who have obesity, all, again, these are all subgroup analyses from the existing randomized trials, but all of these subgroups that we're talking about had benefit compared to the standard of care. And I think your your comments and from your experience, as well as mine, confirm that the use, utility of knowing hemodynamics in these subgroups is, is very valuable. One last question I have for you, going back to a comment you made during uh, your discussion, was how you might approach patients with HEFREF versus HEFPEF a bit differently. And while I have too seen that there uh, likely should be a difference in how these patients should be approached, I haven't really given a lot of thoughtful time to determining what that might be. So I'd be really interested to hear, uh, based upon your experience, how you go about treating HEFREF versus HEFPEF differently with this information. Sure. Well, prior to the introduction of SGLT2 inhibitors, as you know, we really had no evidence-based uh, therapies for the HEF-PEF population based on pathophysiologic considerations. You know, we know that the pressure volume curve of the ventricle as well as the left atrium is steeper in patients who have HEF-PEF compared to HEF-REF. And so that led us to conclude that we should tolerate a s- smaller perturbation or change in pressure before acting. So if we set, you know, a pressure change of four millimeters or five millimeters of mercury in the PA pressure to be the threshold for um, intervention in a HEF-REF patient, we might choose a lower range, say two to three for the HEF-PEF population. And I think, you know, the other point that I would make is that one of the utilities of having continuous or at least day-to-day pressure data is that it allows you to judge the effect of the intervention made the day before. So if we asked our patient to increase their diuretics by, say, 20%, the next day we have another PA pressure to look at, and we can either continue our management, further escalate, or de-escalate as is appropriate. So I think it allows for a more physiologic type of response to pressure elevation as opposed to what we did conventionally, which is, hey, patient has symptoms, their weight's going up, let's double their diuretic, Maybe let's add metolazone and then let's do that for a couple of days and then check labs, which is not as sophisticated an approach as may be possible when we have access to pressure. Well, I will uh, take those tips and try to apply them the best that I can to my patient group. Jacob, do you have any last uh, comments out there for our listeners about uh, any words of wisdom uh, that uh, you might want to pass along to our listenership about you know how to best use this type of uh, technology? I have two comments. I think this technology really, in my view, this is editorializing now, I think provides an opportunity for us to move away from a treatment paradigm that is based on a subjective assessment, which is functional class. All of our society-endorsed guidelines really are dependent upon an assessment of New York Heart Association functional class. And we have ample data that tells us that both patients reporting of their functional class and physician assignment of a New York Heart Association functional class correlates very poorly with objective measures such as six-minute walk distance. And that's why as heart failure physicians, we're oftentimes referring our patients for more objective testing. And I think when we now have an opportunity to measure on a routine ambulatory basis a parameter that is objective and that we know is tied closely at least to 
that has physiologic significance in heart failure, it provides an opportunity for us to be more like our colleagues in oncology who you know, use more precise and objective measures to both phenotype and treat their disease state. And to that, you know, the other point that I was going to make is that, you know, I look forward to the results of another trial that's being done called the VICTOR trial, which is validating the cardiac output measured by a pulmonary artery pressure sensor to the gold standard of MRI. And I don't think it's far in the future where we'll be able to combine pulmonary artery pressure and cardiac output together. Uh, which I think will be especially valuable for those of us who care for patients with advanced heart failure. That'll be very interesting to see that data when it comes out. And one last point, if I can make it, is just that I think this is a burgeoning field. There are other pulmonary artery pressure sensors that are in clinical trials. There is a essentially another trial that is being planned with another pulmonary artery pressure sensor that will be very much like guide looking at class two to class four patients with longer-term follow-up to look at harder endpoints, including survival. So I think we're really just at the beginning. There's also a number of non-invasive, non-implantable, wearable devices that are trying to measure surrogates of invasively determined pressure. So I think the field of remote monitoring and the importance of hemodynamics in the management of heart failure is one that is going to continue to grow. And it'll be interesting to see how the story evolves. Super exciting. You know, I can't wait to, to see all that coming on down the, the pike in the years to come. And uh, hopefully uh, this will help us do a much better job taking care of our heart failure population, which we know just continues to grow and becomes more and more complex as the years go by with all the, the variety of comorbidities and things that we need to, uh, to take care of. Well, again, thanks, Jacob, for taking the time. It's been super fun uh, chatting with you about this. We're going to transition now to our final segment of the show, where Priya is going to join us for From Failure to Function. Priya, take it away. For this episode of From Failure to Function, I'm thrilled to share some tiny tidbits and segments from the American Heart Association's Basic Cardiovascular Sciences Conference that wrapped a couple of weeks ago in Boston. This was an amazing jam-packed conference with innovative bench-to-bedside and back therapies on display for every emerging frontier in cardiovascular science, including for heart failure. There were great talks on everything from the future of genetic medicine, the development of new organized and endothelial cell models, the very latest in myosin-binding protein C therapeutics, and cardiac immunology and heart disease, amongst many great groundbreaking talks. One of the highlights of the conference was Eric Olson's keynote, where he shared work from his lab that I think will have far-reaching impacts in the heart failure field, including the use of CRISPR-based editing as it relates to a number of clinical targets, including the RBM20 gene, modulation of the calcium calmodulin kinase 2 protein, as well as its role in Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Many of us are likely familiar with CRISPR-based gene editing and the potential that gene therapies hold to cure familial cardiomyopathies, but indeed improvements in editing efficiency and the avoidance of off-target gene editing are badly needed. Dr. Olson and his group published in Science and Translational Medicine earlier this year a more precise adenine-based editing and prime editing approach to correct a pathogenic mutation in the RNA-binding motif protein 20, which is a common cause of familial dilated cardiomyopathy. 
the lab used adenine-based editing, both in iPSC-derived cardiac myocytes with a mutation, as well as mice with a mu- with the human mutation, and found that this base editing resulted in improved cardiac function and lifespan. Dr. Olson and his lab also have worked on calcium calmodulin protein kinase 2 delta. This is a kinase that is seminal to calcium regulation in the heart and has been associated with arrhythmias, hypertrophy, and heart failure. The kinase is activated by oxidation as well as calcium upon disease-associated oxidative stress. Suppressing CAM kinase activity in the heart has been challenging because small molecule inhibitors lack specificity, require daily administration, and systemic inhibition of this kinase has shown adverse effects. Work by other scientists in the field, such as Mark Anderson, have shown an alternative approach that by mutating the kinase, mice could be protected from heart disease. Dr. Olson's lab performed adenine-based editing of two CAM kinase methionine residues and tested this in human-induced pluripotent stem cells and in mice subjected to ischemia reperfusion surgery and found that base-edited CAM kinase rescued cardiac function, left ventricular dilatation, and heart failure. Dr. Olson proposes that a one-time delivery of gene-editing components to the heart after injury would be sufficient to impose a blockade to pathological remodeling and to maintain cardiac function. He concluded that these are indeed exciting results seen in vitro and in small animals, and we look forward to additional data to come with in-human trials. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure. The opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of this podcast are their own and not necessarily those of the Heart Failure Society of America. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit hfsa.org slash hfbeat. Follow HFSA on Twitter and look for us at hashtag hfbeat.